that all would be with a view toward advancing your kingdom and your purposes here on earth. Lord, it is so much easier to cooperate with you than it is to have you bring us to that place of cooperation. Oh, Lord, be pleased to be in our presence today. Give ears to hear and eyes to see the things that you would have from your word. And, oh, God, I pray, let those things which emanate forth from me fall on deaf ears. But your words penetrate deep. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I want to give a little caveat at the very beginning. This is nothing astounding. It's nothing new. It's in place every week. But I think maybe sometimes we need reminders, and that is when I am preaching, rarely, truly, and I'm not going to say that it doesn't happen, but it is so rare as to I could almost say it doesn't happen. But it does happen. Rarely do I ever preach trying to send a message to someone, okay? That's the coward's way of doing things. It's not a biblical way of doing things. So each and every week when I preach the Lord's Word, if the shoe fits, then by all means put it on. The Lord has provided it. Put it on where? Walk in it. It'll keep your feet from getting cut up. And if the shoe does not fit, rather than throwing it at me, keep it. Just let it, let it, leave it there on the floor when you leave. That's why we'll come and clean up the auditorium. And, you know, there's shoes laying in here every Sunday. And there's some bloody feet that trails that go out the doors as well. There you go. We are in the book of Judges. No surprise there. We're going to finish up chapter 13 and enter into chapter 14. If some of the introduction here just doesn't fit together, it's probably because you weren't here last week. Because all my messages are a continuous flow of one, you know, how long does your preacher preach? Well, about a year, it seems, lately. Not at one time, of course. But I teach God's Word generally an entire book at a time. Just go through it till we're done. And so every message just kind of builds on where we left off as we work through the text. So I do give, uh, every week I do give a, a little recap. I try to make things make sense, but not always successful in doing that. And sometimes I feel like in trying to do an introduction recapping the previous week's message that I spend half, sometimes more, time doing that. And so, you know, the, the amount of new material that we get to is minuscule. Manoah and his wife, where we left off, have an encounter with a heavenly being, and they are starting to realize that it isn't just a human being, a normal human being who has been raised up by God as a prophet. They're starting to realize that it is an angel, and in fact, even more, they are starting to realize that it is 
not merely an angel, but the angel of the Lord, which means it is none other than Jesus himself, pre-incarnation. All these centuries before he would become incarnated through the Virgin Mary. Manoah, again, still from last week, wants to prepare a meal for this messenger. But the angel declines. But the angel does suggest that instead of a meal, perhaps a burnt offering might be appropriate at this time. Now, if we don't understand what a burnt offering is for, we're going to miss the significance of this. A burnt offering was one of the many offerings that God gave the people of Israel as part of their means of worship. The burnt offering was probably the most common offering that there was. And the reason it was the most common offering was because it was offered by individuals rather than an individual for the whole mass of Israel, as was sometimes done by the high priest, but rather was done by individuals. And the purpose of the burnt offering was to make atonement or to cover that individual's personal sins of that day which is why the burnt offerings were done twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. You say, boy, they sinned that much? Hey, <laughs> if you've got to ask a question like that, you are really young in the faith, if at all. So, yes, the burnt offering was extremely uh, common, but it was extremely important because it is what purified them in the sight of God to keep God's wrath and anger against sin breaking forth. So it was a very merciful and very significant part of their worship. Now, let's get back to that messenger, to that angel, who didn't want to eat with them, but instead suggests that they do a burnt offering. Well, why would the angel balk at being invited in to have a meal? Well, aside of the fact that he was an angel, but that doesn't necessarily stop angels. But the significance of that is that eating a meal with someone in that day was much more than just satisfying hunger pains. Having a meal with someone was a relational act of intimacy, much more so than today. I mean, today, you know, we can get a meal down at, at the gas station, if you want to call that a meal and food, but... Some people enjoy that. So there was this relational intimacy in partaking of a meal, which would explain why this messenger, who is not, again, an angel of the Lord, but is the angel of the Lord, making this angel the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is holy, who is sinless, who is blameless, who as part of the triune God is sinlessly perfect, and am I underscoring this enough, enough, and hates sin, and since sin cannot commune, cannot, cannot get intimate with righteousness or holiness, the angel says, no, I'm not going to have a meal with you, but a burnt offering, purification of yourself from your sins might be a good idea because you are standing in the presence of none other than God Almighty. Holiness 
does not become intimate with sinfulness, which is why God provided this means of cleansing in the burnt offering. It makes the individual suitable to come into the presence of God. So Manoah's desire to sit down to have a meal with their heavenly guest is refused. Again, sin does not enjoy relationship with holiness. That does not, by the way, change, and it will never change. So if we have this mindset, which is very popular amongst people who are not schooled in the Scriptures, there's a different God from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament who hates sin and the God of the New Testament who sin's kind of irrelevant to because he's a God of mercy and grace. Couldn't be further from the truth. You see, there is a drama being played out here that is far more important than even the details of the narrative here, the details about burnt offerings and, and about a meal and everything else. Let me refresh your mind. When Jesus has been crucified, and now he has risen from the dead, but he's not yet gone back to the Father. He's on the road to Emmaus, traveling along, and some of his followers are there with him, but they don't recognize him because their eyes are prevented from seeing him. And so they're inquiring, rather Jesus is inquiring to them about, geez, why do you guys look so depressed, man? You're all down and out. And they say, are you kidding me? Where have you been? The one that we thought was the Savior has been executed. He's been murdered. He's been killed. In other words, our hope has been dashed yet again. And then in Luke chapter 24, Luke records, then Jesus beginning with the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and the writings and the words of the prophets began to explain to those disciples who he was through those Old Testament writings. And that's all they had. New Testament wasn't written yet. It was being just played out. So why is that important and significant? Because you say, well, how was Jesus there in the Old Testament if it was enough to explain to the the disciples in the New Testament who he was by using the Old Testament? Here's just one of many, many examples. That's why this picture here, this drama, everything that's going on with the angel of the Lord is so vital and important because it's a picture of the coming Savior. What we are seeing here is that Manoah's encounter with holiness and the required offering of purification is that profound picture of God's redemptive work on our behalf, which again is to be played out yet centuries down the road when Jesus himself is offered up as the one and only sacrifice good enough for all people for all time, never having to be repeated. We pick up then in, in chapter 13 and verse 19 of the book of Judges. We read, So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, and he offered it on the rock to the Lord. So he's taking the angel at his word, and he's going to offer up this burnt offering to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. Now, last week, if you were here, I had asked you that when you go home next uh, last week, that you would take some time this week to reread just this little portion of what is going on here with the burnt offering and all that happens, and to put yourself in that place, trying to imagine that you are there experiencing what Manoah and his wife are experiencing. What we read is, 
when they offer up the burnt offering and the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord, that is their guest who's standing there, went up into the flames of the altar. Now again, if you're standing there in actuality, and this is happening to you, and remember, you're not, you're not quite sure yet what, what, what it is with this guy. He's special. He's obviously a man of God. Maybe even an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, yeah, that's a stretch. But maybe not, but maybe. So they offer up this burnt offering, the flames are rising up into the sky. And as they're standing there doing this very routine ritual, their guest, and I don't know how or what it looked like exactly, but somehow the guest became one with the flames and just goes up into heaven. What would you do? I might turn to my wife and say, did you see that too? Uh-huh. Maybe. I have no idea. We know what happened with Manoah and his wife. The rest of verse 20 says they fell on their faces to the ground. I guess so. I can see that. It's one thing to know about the wonder-working God of heaven. And it's altogether another thing to personally experience him. (laughs) Verse 21. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Okay, now I know exactly who that was. So Manoah, knowing that it was the angel of the Lord... Manoah says to his wife, we will surely die now, for we have seen God. Now, if you remember what I said last week about the Lord never really directly speaking to Manoah and answering for the most part and even appearing with the angel to his wife and the wife relaying to Manoah went went on, it becomes a little clearer maybe why those conversations and explanations from God to Manoah were lacking. Because even here... Having seen the visage of God in the angel, Manoah believes now that he and his wife are going to die. He's always misinterpreting things. So why give him the message and misinterpret it to his wife? We'll just give it to his wife, and God will get back through his wife to Manoah. Well, I suspect, to be fair to Manoah here, that this isn't so off the wall. Why would he think he's going to die? Well, if I ever saw God face to face, or even an angel of the Lord, I just might have a heart attack. But I suspect that his mind was more theological than that, and that it was on an incident that occurred that he would be intimately familiar with that occurred to Moses and the Lord at the time of the Exodus. God was ready to take his people into the promised land, which was a daunting task for the people of Israel. And Moses just wants some reassurance that, Lord, you're not going to just throw us out there and leave us to the wolves and everything else, that you are going to stay with us and remain with us. Please give me a little assurance. That's the background. In Exodus 33:18, Moses says, So I pray, show me your glory. It'll be that little boost that I need to be able to take the people in. Little did he know that that wouldn't happen either. But he said, I'm, and the Lord says to him, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Well, they just saw the 
angel of the Lord face to face. And so Manoah reasons that they had just seen God, rightly, and consequently they are doomed. But Manoah's wife, yet again, brings clarity to him concerning the wondrous workings of God. Verse 23, Manoah's wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Period. Next sentence. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. Wait, what? Are we to believe that they just did this burnt offering? They see the angel of the Lord go up and she goes, and she, it's that easy, I've heard. <laughs> yeah, ooh, okay. All right, you can take your shoes off and throw them now if you want, ladies. That's fine. There's obviously a contraction of time here in the historical narrative. Burnt offering, angel of the Lord goes up to heaven. Some time now takes place, but boom, we're just right in the next sentence. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up in the Lord, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtoil. So after all the buildup now of the previous uh, chapters that we've been working through this in about Manoah and his wife, All the groundwork is there. It's built in about bringing this special one into the world, and Samson is finally born. But did you happen to notice yet another literary tie connecting this story? Remember the drama. Remember this is all a portent of the redemption that is coming through the capital S Savior instead of just one of these earthly judges. I don't know how many times I've been through this passage myself, but only this time did I see yet another connection to the once-for-all coming Savior. Namely, when we go up into the New Testament, we see that Jesus is born, and then there's not a whole lot there. And we find out, okay, when he was about 12 years old or whatever, we have that little story where he went off and he took off on his own, and Mary and Joseph were all worried about him. That's pretty much it. Well, he was in the synagogue and all that. And then that's it. So basically we go from Jesus being born, almost nothing, until we come to the wedding of Cana, where his public ministry is inaugurated. But by now, Jesus is 30 years old. So again, that's contraction of time from the birth to the advent of the ministry. In this book here in Judges, between verse 24 and 25, we go from pretty much the same thing. We go from the birth of Samson to the advent of his public ministry, Namely, what's his public ministry? Although he doesn't know it. It's his calling from God as a small s, Savior. That is what judge means, judge, deliverer, or Savior. And the Lord begins moving in Samson's heart and mind for the purposes for which God set him apart even before he was brought into the world. So Samson comes of age meaning he is now at a place in his life where and when the Lord can and will use him while in the midst of very ordinary routines of life. Let us not lose the fact that the Lord has begun, though, to stir Samson for the work for which the Lord brought him into the world. Let's not lose that. 
And what was that work? Well, remember the previous epochs, meaning the periods of time in the book of Judges with some of the other judges? What happened in those other epochs and what is different in this particular epoch concerning the cycle of sin, which brought on hardship brought by God, which brought about repentance, which brought about the people crying out to God, which brought about deliverance. In this particular epoch now, there is no crying out by the people even yet. God's people had grown used to the domination of the Philistines over them, and they were in bondage, but they hardly even realized it. So God in His mercies brings forth the final judge, deliverer, small s, Savior, and He stirs His spirit to grow dissatisfied with the status quo. Because you see, what man will not do, God will make it happen and amazingly will not violate man's free will in the purpose uh, in in the process you say well how can he do that oh it's easy let's say we were convinced god just told everybody to leave this room now and let's say most people got up there were three people in here just that ain't the lord i don't believe it's not going to happen i ain't leaving i care see okay How does God make them move and not violate their free will? Well, one silly little way is God goes and brings in a swarm of yellow jackets. And all of a sudden these yellow jackets are going, and they're like, and they exercise their free will and left the room. God is sovereign. What man will not do, God does will do. God is stirring Samson's spirit to become angry with what I called last week, I think, the new normal. Don't forget this. And what's the first move that Samson makes as a result of this steering in, stirring in his spirit by God? Verse 1 in chapter 14. Then Samson went down to Timnah. Stop! Timnah is a city. It's only four miles away from where Samson is, but it's a different world because you've got God's people all communally living over here, and four miles away is the headquarters, if you will, of the Philistines. Timnah, for a follower of Jehovah, much less for a young man who was, remember, under a Nazarite vow, is like a testosterone-saturated single 20-something taking a little excursion to Vegas. Nothing, humanly speaking, good can come of this. But remember, this is the Lord stirring up Samson's spirit. The Lord does this kind of thing. Don't we know that? There are at least six times in the Old Testament when the Lord sends an evil spirit to incite one leader of a nation against another leader of a nation. Now, they wouldn't be aware of that. The news media wouldn't be aware of that. But we have historical examples where God did just that to bring about His purposes. And again, like that swarm of bees, it's not violating anybody's free will. 
And it makes you wonder on so many different levels on any given day, but in particular right now, is Vladimir Putin really acting of his own accord in taking over the Crimea? You see, having a Christian worldview means more than just getting up and robotically going to church once a month. It means learning to see and think as the God of heaven sees and thinks and to make decisions accordingly. If there is one message that we should have gotten by now in this book of Judges, it is that what appear to be normal events going on by normal people who are making normal decisions in the normal routines of life that the Lord can and will and has and does interject his authority over the lives and the minds of those he created for his purpose in bringing about his plans for mankind. Now, if your trust is in the Lord God Almighty... And all that that means. This all ends up great. We know that. And you are in a good place if that is where your trust is. But if your trust is not in the Lord, as we say in these pots, it's time to smarten up. His is the only name that's a strong and mighty tower. A shelter like no other. Let the nations sing it louder, because nothing has the power to save but the one whose name is Pele. Wonderful. From last week. So, verse 2, he came back and he told his father and his mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me. As a wife, moms and dads, I want to ask you now, like I did last week in the other scenario, that you put yourself now into this narrative. Your mom and dad, and you have raised your son or your daughter. I'm going to refer to son from here on out, but either one. You've raised your son and your daughter in a Christian home, in a very, what I would call a very normal Christian home of our day, which means, and believe me, yours truly is included in this, which means as a normal Christian home today, to one degree or another, we have accommodated many of the morals and the values of our culture. But still, there is that foundation of Christian influence and worldview, albeit ever so imperfect. So your son now, who's grown up, at least chronologically, your adult son, who grew up in church, has many Awana badges and trophies and plaques from Sunday school. He jets out to Vegas for a week, and he comes back all excited, and he tells you that he is in lust. I mean love. Verse 3, and his father and his mother said to him, Is it, Oh, Sammy, Sammy Whammy, Samson, 
Mommy's little pookie wookie. Daddy's big boy. <laughs> Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Okay, to mom and dad's credit here, they at least show a bit of resistance, but frankly, the reason I took my license in saying it the way I did is it seems to me to be quite half-hearted based on what follows in the rest of the narrative. And I say half-hearted because these are God's people. Oh, enculturated to many of the ways of the Philistine culture, to be sure, but they are still God's people. And if there is one thing that is clear to these who are God's people, it is that God does not compromise His holiness. God does not soften or ease His standards of righteousness. He does not ever lower His standards of what He has determined to be good and right and true. You will never find the God of the Bible ever inquiring of His people in a sympathetic manner as to why they happened to offer, for example, the wrong kind of animal at a particular offering, or the wrong kind of offering on the wrong day, or at the wrong time, or in the wrong way, or why they decided, silly you, to work on the Sabbath, or why they chose to eat unclean food at their last meal. So Samson's mom and dad, themselves, as I said, steeped in the culture that has adopted, such that they have adopted a new norm, yet they're still God's people, and all that that means as far as the whole worship of Jehovah, they try to reason with their son. Son, our relatives are, are, are many. Have you checked out? The babes in the other tribes? That's a loose rendering of the Hebrew there. It shows again at least their consternation over his sinful selection of a mate from the Philistines. At least they recognized it as being unhealthy. The rest of verse 3, after they give that tepid little inquiry, Samson says to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. Literally, in the Hebrew, this reads, She is right in my eyes, which means I don't give two squabs for what is right in your eyes. And worse, it means and I don't give a flying leap that it's not right in God's eyes. It is right in my eyes. And do you realize that this is the same sin that started all sin? You're saying, huh? Yeah. This is how it started in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. 
the fruit was delightful to the eyes, we are told. And once Eve said, hmm, that is right in my eyes, it doesn't matter that God said, don't. It's not right in my eyes. Samson's obviously a soulful, deep, contemplative young man, the kind everyone would want their daughter to marry since he's demonstrated the depths of his being, selecting his mate for life based solely on her appearance. Not that that ever happens today. (laughs) Get her for me! She looks hot! Another loose rendering. And then verse 3 comes to a screeching halt, and there's this intrusion into the narrative called verse 4, but it's parentheticals. There's a parenthesis around this. It's a parenthesis because it's going to explain something about what we just read. However, verse 4, his father and his mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he, the Lord, was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now, at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. End of the explanation. Okay, how is that helpful to us? In the culture, it was the parents' responsibility to select their son's wife. And then it was the parents' responsibility to go and meet the bride's parents and to make all the arrangements, which meant basically in our, in our cultural milieu of, of, of language, paying for the wedding and all that was involved with that, taking care of all those details with the bride's family, which Samson was fine with. He didn't have a problem with them doing that when there was something that he thought it was going to be to his advantage. But when it came to choosing the bride, as the parents also should have done, he wanted his parents out of his life. Now, let's not misunderstand verse 4, the explanation. The fact that neither mom nor dad knew this was the hand of God working in history. That's the point of that. It's telling us they didn't know what was going on here. That's an even greater indictment against them, specifically for their lack of resolve in taking a stand against their selfish son's sinful demand. What I mean is that they didn't give in to Samson because they knew God was behind it. Then we can at least understand that. Boy, this is not this has got bad written all over it, but God's behind it. The passage just told us they didn't know God was behind it. Which means they gave in because they were parents lacking conviction and confidence in what is divinely right and wrong. Parents. When we lack Holy Spirit conviction of what God declares to be supremely right and wrong, we will more than likely cave to the demands of our children. Manoah and his wife lacked that conviction, and they did not stand against their precious Sammy Whammy 
who was planning flagrant and vile sin against the clear dictates of God. You can look that up in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. They were not to intermarry with the nations, not because God was racist, but because God didn't want them adopting the godless, idolatrous ways of the culture. So why the parents' uncertainty? Go back to last week's message about God's people, again, adopting that new norm of the Philistine culture, mingling the idolatrous idolatrous values of the culture of the Philistines with their own worship of Jehovah. Now, parents, remember if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, don't wear it. Do you hear what I am saying. Let me try and make it plain and practical. We cannot always control our children's decisions, especially the older they get. But if they are blatantly sinful, according to the counsel of God in His Word, not according to your particular likes or dislikes or preferences, we had better not give any encouragement We had better not give a smidge of enablement or even the semblance or the appearance of approval, no matter how much your child and the world disagrees with your conviction and protests and spews and spouts in anger. Let me put this in a nutshell. God has promised... Through this book of Judges, but throughout the Old Testament, God has promised to be, in this case that we're talking about, your wayward child's enemy. Why in heaven's name would you help your child whom you love to continue on a path of divine defiance? I see this played out nauseatingly often in the church that wears Jesus' name in epidemic proportions. Two examples, just because they are common and because they have lifelong consequences. Two examples seem to land in the realm of their children's so-called love lives. They are in love with or are growing in love with someone who does not share the most important aspects of who your child is, namely their faith. Now, we're making some assumptions here about your child's faith. And how do the parents respond? We throw a celebration. Forget that God says, do not be unequally Yoked. Or they are in a relationship with someone who is not biblically eligible for marriage. What does that mean? You can look it up in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, or 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Or our child becomes pregnant out of wedlock. And what do we do? We convey our disappointment, I hope, at least... And then we throw them a party, celebrating with gifts and festivities 
thus putting our personal stamp of endorsement on what God considers to be a tragedy. And why does he consider it a tragedy? Because he is a mean God? No, hardly. It's because he knows what the future holds right now, today, for that new mother, your child. He knows what the future holds for that father, whether he's involved or not. He knows what that future holds for the innocent bystanders called the child, called the grandparents, called the aunts and uncles. And those who have lived through this or are living through this are sadly saying to yourself, yep, yep, he is speaking the truth. The fact that Samson's trek took him to the Philistines, that it's the Lord's doing, does not relieve the parents from responsibility Samson's parents are not blameless for cooperating with their belligerent and their self-absorbed son. Now believe me, please hear me. My intention and God's intention is not that anybody walks out of here kicking themselves and flogging themselves and heaping condemnation on yourselves. But he is wanting you to walk out of here hearing whatever it is that he has for you in this, for your now or for your future. Because he is that loving God. And he so wants us to get the most out of this life and to enjoy it to the fullest. And that is done by following his ways. And we have so adopted the, the culture and our theology is all too often so shallow that we lack that conviction to make the hard call and the hard decision for fear of alienating our wayward child. Well, right now, they're, you know, they're, they're, I have an influence and an input into their lives. I understand that. And believe me, this is, this is so individually unique, okay? It isn't one size fits all that it takes tons of Holy Spirit wisdom to know where and when and how this plays out in your particular situation. So please make sure you hear that. This is not a simplistic, here it is, one, two, three, four, five, it's that easy, that's done, boom, bang. It's not that way at all. But I was talking to a couple after this first service, and they were talking about this thing, and they were particularly struggling with something currently and I took them to a position, a, a situation in, in Barbara in my life with one of our kids when they were 15. And they were making bad choices and bad decisions. And I was doing what a good parent would do. One, I started from the cradle to have a relationship with each one of my children. And I say that. You say, well, where did that come from in this whole scenario? Because that is such an important piece here. If your child only knows the condemning, the forbidding, the hand of God smacking you on the head kind of parrot, you've already set yourself up for rebellion before rebellion's even started. So I had that built-in relationship there. 
wasn't, was, didn't prevent us having a difficult time with one of them sneaking out of the house. I was having my soul eaten up, as you can well imagine, you parents who have been through it. I started putting pieces of paper, just minute that you couldn't even see, to find out if she had snuck out during the night and had come back. I'd know, and I did know. And after just a few months, it was so eating me up and eating our household up and affecting the whole household and the siblings. And it has to spill over into the ministry here at the church as far as my personal vitality. I had to have a talk with my 15-year-old, the kind that no parent ever wants to have. But if you have it, you had better before God in heaven be serious and ready to carry through. Because what I said to her was, I cannot afford to allow you to ruin, let this filth spread in the home. So I am no longer getting up in the middle of the night at all hours to check on you to see if you're in your bed. I'm not putting out little traps to find out if you're gone. But I will tell you this. And this isn't the first time they heard what I'm about to say. They heard it when there wasn't that, that, you know, that thing going on in the whole relationship now and everything else. They heard it and they see it played out with an undergirding foundation of a relationship of a loving dad who dated them personally and knew that he would die for them. All that being given. And I said, like I said, they've heard this many times. There is the umbrella of God called grace over his people, over his children, and over our household. I am that designee by God over my household, and there's that umbrella of grace over this household. Your mother and I will never kick you out of this house. Wait for the next shoe to drop. However, just like God and His children, the Heavenly Father and His children, when they were willfully disobedient and unrepentant, He let them leave from under that umbrella of grace and all that that meant now of being ravaged by whatever's out there. You are no longer under God's protective grace and mercy. So I said, you will never be kicked out of this house, but when you have determined that you cannot live by the dictates of that umbrella over this house, you will have chosen to leave. Well, what you're saying is you're going to kick me out. I said, yeah, and I ran through it again and a third time. No, you. See, don't put the responsibility on me. Our kids are masters at it. Keep the guilt on dad. It's your fault. You kicked me out. I didn't kick you out. You chose to leave. Let me go over the ground rules once again. We have a perfect father who tells them to us. And I said, so if I happen to get up one night to go to the bathroom and you are not in your bed, this place will be locked up because I know how you get in and out, et cetera, et cetera. And do not come back here and bang on that door to come in unless it is to come back under that graceful umbrella of mercy and love. And then you walk away, dads. And I had a whole army of people from here at the church praying for her and for us. And I'm praying to God through tears, Lord, because I meant it. Please, dear God, don't make me have to do that. 
And by God's grace, she broke. And that hold of sin was broken. And she lived the rest of her months in high school of her own choosing. Essentially locked away in the tower of her bedroom. Because she knew that the influence of those she had made her friends were too strong and too powerful. And she no longer wanted any part of that. So please, again, hear the the love and the compassion. But we do not, as parents, because it's so hard, we do not enjoy, duh. Whether it's a spanking when they're two years old, or whether it's a grounding when they're 12 years old, or a taking away the car when they're 16 years old, or what, we don't like to do that. And even worse, we don't like the fallout that we accept and receive from them in protest. But the God of heaven, who could have sent the hornets in to get us to go wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted, sometimes he just goes, no, I'm just going to let you go out there. I'm here for you. I will be here when you come back. And when you come back, and I mean come back, I will never turn you away. But when you come back, you had better come back. If it's good enough for a perfect father, it's good enough for imperfect parents. Let me ask you to stand. Uh, Paul, come on up. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the uh, shoes that you gave out today. Uh, I'm wearing one of them myself. And, Lord, uh, thank you for, look, for us uh, giving us a chance to look over your shoulder in Samson's case. Your, uh, Jesus was even present in that situation, Lord, and yet uh, uh, Samson's parents chose to go against him a little bit. So, Lord, uh, you died for us. You gave you a complete self for us, Lord. And like the last... Uh, him, uh, the last uh, song that we sang, Lord, it says, give completely to you, Lord. And so I ask you to give the, ourselves completely to you as we leave this place to remember that uh, you died on the cross for us and you gave yourself completely for us. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.